by the power of the Holy Spirit working through word and sacrament. Then we hunger and thirst for the righteousness of God. My friends, it's just that simple. It's in the divine service that he's there for you, that he delivers the forgiveness. That's where he promises forgiveness will be. Uh, And so that's why it's so important uh, to be in church. We long that God would answer the prayer when we pray, deliver us from evil. Get me out of here. Get me out of this sin-filled world. And that is Jesus Christ uh, who says, Do not count their sin against them, for my blood has paid the price for that. Now on 95.7 FM, it's Proclaiming the One with Pastor Clint Poppy and Pastor Adam Moline from Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Lincoln, Nebraska. Welcome once again to Proclaiming the One. Pastor Poppy, Pastor Moline, and along with us today is our trusted vicar, Albert Bader. Uh, seems like it's been weeks since we uh, recorded one of our Proclaiming the One programs, and it literally has been. We worked way, way ahead to uh, get ahead of uh, Pastor Moline's uh, uh, vaunted bear hunting expedition. We'll uh, we'll spare him the embarrassment of uh, explaining um, uh, why I'm not going to get a bear liver to munch on. But uh, we uh, we are back, and uh, he's rolling his <laughs> eyes now because uh, I had to I'm, tell the I'm whole I'm taking world. you with me next year. So when we get 25 miles in, then we'll see who's laughing. <laughs> yeah, you are, you already told me you were taking your wife and kids next year. So. Uh, I guess I'm. I guess I'm uh, out to lunch on that. Uh, each week we gather together and uh, share some thoughts, some uh, encouragement, some ideas based on God's word for the upcoming readings in our liturgical year. We are proclaiming the one. We proclaim the one and only Savior from sin, the God-Man Jesus Christ, who through His life, death, and resurrection has won salvation for all people. We do this specifically in the one-year series of readings. Two options in uh, many churches and uh, in the Lutheran service book. There's a three-year option set of readings and a one-year, sometimes called the historic lectionary set of readings. And uh, here at Good Shepherd and with our Proclaiming the One program, we look at the one-year readings. This is one of the days in the church here where oftentimes... The readings for the one year and the three year overlap, uh, not a hundred percent, but generally with the gospel reading for sure. We are looking at perhaps the most unique Sunday in the liturgical year. It is simply called Trinity Sunday, the Holy Trinity. It is the one Sunday out of the year that we devote entirely to a particular doctrine. The doctrine of the Holy Trinity, it is a mystery, one God in three persons, three persons in one God. It is the liturgical custom in most churches that on Trinity Sunday, we confess the Athanasian Creed. And so that makes it like really the favorite or the least favorite service because of that for many of our folks as well. Uh, Comments in general, Pastor, on Trinity Sunday. 
It is, uh, like you said, one of the unique Sundays, uh, and the highlight is reading that Athanasian Creed, but it, it gives us an opportunity to kind of talk about and teach one of the most two basic faith or basic foundations of our Christian faith, um, which is actually one of the most complicated doctrines of the Christian faith as well, and that's the Holy Trinity. In the Athanasian Creed, it says, whoever desires to be saved must above all hold the Catholic faith. And then it summarizes the Catholic faith as number one, believing in the Trinity, one God and unit or one God and Trinity, Trinity and unity, uh, neither dividing the substance nor confusing the people. Uh, and the second part of it is then you also have to believe in Jesus Christ that he lived, died, and rose for the forgiveness of our sins, that he's both God and man. And if you uphold the Trinity and the doctrine of Jesus, it says, then you're a Christian. And uh, talking about the Trinity, uh, I think, you know, we have some really great writings from the Church Fathers where they go into thousands and thousands of pages trying to explain the Trinity, and in the end they say, the only way you can actually understand the Trinity is just to believe it because Scripture teaches it. It's a complicated doctrine, um, and yet it is one of the most basic, simple doctrines of our faith as well. Yeah, th- this uh, to say that it's a complicated doctrine I think is a bit of a misnomer. It's a mystery. It's a mystery. And so all mysteries, if you try to unravel them, are complicated because it's a mystery and they can't be unraveled. Correct. And so uh, the the example that I like to use um, is that uh, my wife loves me. Uh, Why is a complete mystery to mankind? (laughs) But it's true. And you you can appreciate the mystery. You can talk about the mystery but you can't really fully grasp it or understand it. And that is the mystery of the Trinity. One God in three persons, three persons in one God. Some people today would say that uh, the Trinity is just not that big a deal, that the Trinity is irrelevant. And there are many, many Christian churches that in their official documents, they confess and believe the doctrine of the Trinity. But in reality, in practice, the mention, the confession, the singing to and about the Holy Trinity is completely absent. And so we have many, many people growing up in Christian churches today that don't know about the Trinity or think it is a nothing. And so this is our one opportunity a year to dig deep into the mystery of the Trinity, to confess the truth of God's Word, and also to confess before the world why the Trinity, the doctrine of the Trinity, matters. And I think that's a great opportunity that we have. And we have that opportunity every time we gather together in worship. But the, uh, the focus is specific on that doctrine today. Before we let this entire first segment get away from us, uh, Vicar, the introit for Trinity Sunday. Blessed be the Holy Trinity and the undivided unity. Let us give glory to him because he has shown his mercy to us. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth! You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and infants you establish strength. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, and crowned him with glory and honor. 
you hear uh, in that first part of the antiphon, you hear echoes of the Athanasian Creed there in that liturgical text. The bulk of our introit are a few selected verses from Psalm 8. And uh, Psalm 8 has a couple of contemporary Christian songs uh, that are uh, written based on Psalm 8. So people... Um, Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic! Yeah, uh, I don't know who that who sang that or whatever. Yeah, Pastor Moline's got shivers up his spine now. But people know Psalm eight because of that, and that's not a bad thing. So, Pastor, uh, there's no mention of the Trinity in here. There's no one God in three persons, three persons in one God. Why do the people who put together our liturgical readings for the day, why in the world do we have these verses from Psalm 8 for our intro on Trinity Sunday? There's a number of reasons. To start with, I'd say it says because, uh, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth? And what is the name of God? He is God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We begin all of our worship in that name. Uh, We end our prayers with that name. We talk about what that means in the catechism, uh, that we preach God's word according to the name of God and its truth and purity. And so when we're talking about the name of God, God is the Trinitarian God. That's the thing that sets him apart as our God as opposed to uh, the God of Islam or the God of Buddha uh, or any of the other false religions that are out there. And so the fact that we say Holy Trinity or that we say name refers us back to the Holy Trinity. We also have in there discussion about uh, the creation being the work of of God. And we also have this discussion about God being a little lower than the heavenly beings, which is reference to uh, Jesus. And so we do have reference in other ways to God the Father in creation, God the Son, um, with redemption, and we also then uh, would have, uh, you know, kind of the idea of the Holy Spirit at work here in the Word of God as well. So we have Trinity present in more than one way in this introit. Okay, uh, well said, thank you. Um, we have, as we often do in the introit, a, a a specific emphasis on God as Creator, and this, along with the Trinity. The creation and a creator God seems to be mocked and ridiculed and uh, uh, discounted today. Why is it important that we emphasize and include the first article and the first article gifts whenever we're talking about the doctrine of the Holy Trinity? Well, um, in fact, it is in Genesis chapter 1 that the Holy Trinity is first present and even talked about. Uh, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We have this idea, and we oftentimes just think of that God being only God the Father. But the truth is, uh, we don't just have discussion about him. We also, in verse 2 of Genesis chapter 1, have discussion about the Spirit of God hovering over the face of the waters. And how does God bring creation into existence? He says, let there be light, let there be uh, a separation between the firmament, let the ground come together and seas be formed, let trees sprout. And John, in John's gospel, John chapter 1, he tells us that the word that God spoke is Jesus. And so even in Genesis 1-1, we have God the Father doing the creating while the Holy Spirit is over the face of the deep and God the Son is being spoken, bringing things into existence. It is a Trinitarian God that is doing this work, and that's why we talk about the creation when we talk about the name of God. Vicar, how would you uh, respond if somebody said to you, 
Uh, I don't believe in the doctrine of the Trinity because the word Trinity does not appear in the Bible, either in the Old Testament or New Testament. How might you respond? It doesn't. It's something that man has come up with all by himself. Uh, but we use it because in Matthew chapter 28, Jesus tells us, go and make disciples of the, in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and gives us that triune name, three in one. That's where that triune trinity comes from. And uh, might also say, you know, we use other terminology that's not in the scriptures too, such as sacrament. That uh, term is never actually used, but that's how the mysterious... Uh, the word mystery is translated into Latin, and so that's the way that we got that word as well. Okay, so don't get hung up on uh, that. That's kind of the first bullet in the chamber by anti-Trinitarian people. Pastor, in the time that we have left, the last line in our uh, introit, it says, You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. Some people look at verses like that and would have some sort of uh, teaching of subordinationism with regard to the Son is not equal to the Father, the Son is a lesser God, maybe a small g God. How, how can we uh, understand that verse and still hold to the teaching that God is clear with regard to the Holy Trinity? Well, it's not subordination. Uh it is actually described very clearly in the Athanasian Creed when it talks about how the communication of attributes between the godness of Jesus and the humanness of Jesus comes about. And um, off the top of my head, I want to say it says, um, this is an exact quote, um, that God brings the humanness into himself, and therefore it's not so much that Jesus is being... Um, is lower on the totem pole, perhaps, but rather he's taking on a job that is um, lower in stature while still retaining his godness and glory and might and power and wisdom and honor and thanksgiving. And so it's not talking about the um, intrinsic uh, reality of who Jesus is. It's talking about the things that he's accomplishing and doing. We call this the humiliation of Christ, where he comes down, suffers, bleeds, and dies. Okay. And I'm sorry I didn't give you much time on that, but uh, we'll have more time on that when we come back in our next segment. We're going to look at the gospel reading for Trinity Sunday, John 3, 1 to 17. Don't change that dial. Proclaiming the one. We'll be right back. You are listening to KNNALP 95.7 FM, Lincoln, Nebraska. You are listening to KNNALP 95.7 FM, Lincoln, Nebraska. Praise to the Lord who will prosper your work and defend you. Surely.
Welcome back to Proclaiming the One. Pastor Poppy, Pastor Moline, Vicar Bader, who are privileged to serve at Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Lincoln. <coughs> Excuse me. We're looking at the readings for Trinity Sunday, the Holy Trinity. And uh, in our first segment, we looked at the introit, a portion of Psalm 8 and uh, liturgical text, Blessed be the Holy Trinity and the Undivided Unity, a paraphrase from the Athanasian Creed. In our second segment, we... Uh, dug into our long gospel reading from John 3, 1 to 17. And now we want to uh, dig right back into that John 3 text. Uh, There's so many things here to address, and I'd really like to look at the text itself rather than try to force the text into the Trinity framework or whatever, because as a whole, all of these readings testify to the Holy Trinity. Uh, starting in uh, verse 10. Jesus answered him, speaking to Nicodemus, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know, and we bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not, you do not receive our testimony." What is Jesus talking about here, Pastor? What uh, unseen things, what testimony, what has Jesus been teaching that Nicodemus and Nicodemus as a representative of all the other people have not believed? Well, Jesus has been teaching about baptism, uh, as the vicar pointed out in the last segment, and he's been teaching about uh, the fact that Jesus has come down from above and that uh, therefore he is God, and uh, a part of that Godhead, the Trinitarian Godhead, and so um, Jesus is trying to tell him these things, and Nicodemus just isn't understanding. So we're talking incarnation. Yep. We're talking um, how God distributes his gifts yep. and uh, the waters of holy baptism in that respect. Uh, and isn't it interesting that those are some of the same things that we have problems getting people to understand in our world today, not so much our members, but... You know, we have disagreements across the entire church about the means of grace, about the incarnation, and about the Trinity. I think that is a uh, an excellent point, and something that I've observed over the three decades that I've been uh, doing this uh, pastor and before that lay minister gig, is that uh, with regard to Christians in general, Jesus as God... Jesus dying on the cross, Jesus rising from the dead. There's pretty much general agreement. You know, if you if you hold to the creeds, the three ecumenical creeds, the Apostles Nicene and Athanasian, uh, those are are some of the basic tenets of the faith. And so, the vast majority of people, uh, whether they believe it or not, would at least acknowledge that's what a Christian is. You know, to to uh, understand how salvation is accomplished. And yet, with regard to how salvation is distributed or how salvation is received, here is where we have so many misunderstandings and so many disagreements. Um, Is it my work? Is it partially my work? Or as Lutherans believe, teach, and confess, are we completely passive with regard to this, and it is 100% God's gift. Vicar, uh, Jesus is teaching Nicodemus, 
and he's teaching him about baptism, and he uses the example or the illustration, because Nicodemus brings it up, with this whole born-again thing. And Nicodemus, thinking on one level, says, how can I enter into my mother's womb and be born again? And Jesus is almost like, that's right. That's exactly right. How does using our natural birth and how much we have to do with our natural birth, how does that help teach us about God's gift of baptism and God's gift of faith in general? Yeah, so Nicodemus is doing what sinners want to do. We want to do something. How am I going to enter a second time into my mother's womb? And Jesus goes right back to the natural order of things, it's natural order of things and says, this is nothing that you can do. Actually, every single one of these, uh, every one of these times that it says to be born, that's a passive act. A baby does nothing to be born. It has outside actions working on it to force itself out of the womb. And that's exactly what Jesus does for us in baptism. It's a passive act being done to us by God. It's a gift. Not something that we do or earn on our own, but something that he gives to us. Well said, and uh, sometimes it's just that simple. Uh, I had nothing to do with my physical birth. I have nothing to do with my spiritual rebirth, being born again. Jesus, uh, Jesus goes on, and he uh, makes reference to his incarnation, and then he says in verse 13, No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Uh, Pastor, this is a, a long time before Jesus' physical, bodily ascension into heaven. What is he talking about here with this ascension and descension or descending talk? Well, the discussion about no one has ascended or gone up into heaven except for the one who descended, um, what that's saying, what Jesus is teaching here, is that you cannot, by your own reason or strength, believe or come to Jesus. You can't climb the ladder into heaven. You can't get there by the the works that you do. Uh, you can't, um, you know, buy your way in. Uh, I always think of... Uh, I am, I am uh, mimicking climbing a ladder right now for all of you who want a visual <laughs> on the radio. Uh, it's, it's, trust me, you don't need the visual. It's a good thing it's radio. <laughs> uh, it you know it makes me think of the guy who uh, funded the selling of indulgences uh, during Martin Luther's time back in Germany. Uh, he took all the riches that he amassed during his life and put them in this endowment uh, to build little cottages that he lets people live in for you know a euro a year now, so long as you pray two times a day that he'll get out of purgatory and into heaven and uh, the Lord's prayer on his behalf. And for 500 years this has been going on. That's the way he's trying to get himself ascended up into heaven. And Jesus says very clearly here that you can't do that. It doesn't work that way. Uh, the only way you can get there is if you're attached to Jesus, the one who descended and will ascend. And when you're attached to Jesus by his grace, by his work, then that's how you enter into God's kingdom. You know, I think that's a marvelous way to think about the physical ascension of Jesus into heaven. Uh, Paul tells us in Ephesians 5 that he does that in order to fill all things. Uh, Jesus descended from heaven, the incarnation. We can't 
ascend either physically or spiritually on our own power. We have none. But Christ is the one who completes his task here on earth through his death and his resurrection. He physically ascends to heaven and fills all things. And now we who are in Christ Jesus by grace through faith ascend with him. On Christ's ascension, I now build the hope of my ascension. And uh, that hymn just sums it up so beautifully. Um, we have another uh, you know, Jesus is saying, you know, you're an expert in uh, in the Bible. You're an expert in the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. And so Jesus tries to use an example, one that Nicodemus can grasp. Uh, I believe it was, uh, oh, the third or the fourth week in uh, Easter, we had the uh, Old Testament reading with regard to Numbers 22, the poisonous snakes, and how... Uh, the poisonous snakes are biting the people, and the people are, oh, the poisonous snakes are here. Take them away. But God doesn't take them away. Instead, he says, take a fake snake, a bronze serpent, and put it up on a pole. Tell the people to look at it and to live. We had that reading just a few weeks ago in church. And now Jesus refers to that starting in verse 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. That's John three fourteen and 15. Why, Vicar, does Jesus point Nicodemus back to this amazing account in the book of Numbers? He's showing that in all of the Old Testament, which Nicodemus was an expert in, he was an expert in the law and the prophets, uh, all these things point forward to Jesus and what he's going to do for the salvation of the world. So just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so also Jesus is going to be lifted up on Calvary's cross, paying for the sins of the world. And all people who live and believe in him and cling to him and his forgiveness for life and salvation will be saved. So sometimes people will say that uh, the the bronze serpent on a pole is a type of, of Christ or a picture of Christ. Can you uh, can you unpack that language for us, Pastor? Yeah, uh, typology is the. Um, in, if we were talking about literature, we would say it's foreshadowing or uh, teaching what's going to come later on with prophecy or whatnot. And so the bronze serpent on the pole. Uh, definitely does foreshadow Christ. And in fact, the uh, two verses here, 14 and 15, parallel verse 16 as well uh, in their construction and even in some of the language and the words go, that they go use. Go ahead with verse 16. Go ahead. So uh, we have this idea that um, uh, as Moses lifts up the serpent so the people could look at that and, and not die from the serpent bites, uh, the same way God loves the world. And God, instead of lifting up a bronze serpent, is going to lift up his son, also nailed to a pole or a cross, uh, however you want to talk about it. And so Jesus is lifted up, and the whole world looks to Jesus. And in Jesus, then, uh, we are um, not condemned, we're not killed. And it's not uh, 
just regular serpents that are attacking us, but rather it is the serpent that also attacked Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, uh, undermining God's word and leading them astray uh, from the one true faith. And so these two sentences, you know, if you look at your Bible, write them out next to each other so that the part, whoever believes in him may have eternal life, match up on the next line. And you can just see it's a chiasm in the way it's constructed so that you can understand this is how God loves the world. John, um, I think as John says later in one of his epistles, this is love, not that we loved God, but that God loved us and gave his son as a propitiatory sacrifice. That's the exact same thing these few verses are saying. Uh, in our time that we have left in this segment, Pastor, I want to take a look at verse 17 of John chapter 3. In my experience, this is one of the most overlooked and uh, ignored Bible passages in all of the Gospel of John. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. How is so much of the world have a misunderstanding of the reason, the mission, the purpose why God sent his Son into the world? Yeah, um, and I, some maybe it would be helpful to have verse 18 connected to that as go, well. Go ahead where and explain Jesus that. says, um, yeah, let me make sure I get it here. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Whoever does not believe is condemned already. It's not that there's no condemnation for sin in the world, but rather uh, we already stand condemned by God's word that has been spoken through the law and proclaimed by the prophets and the Moses in the Old Testament. Uh, and now Christ has come not to continue in that condemnation, but rather to grant forgiveness of sins to all those people who believe in him. Uh, and so that's where our hope needs to be is in Christ. It's not a license to sin. Rather, it's a, a promise of forgiveness by trust in Christ. Well said, Pastor. And when we come back from our break, we're going to look at Isaiah 6, 1 to 7, the Old Testament reading for Trinity Sunday. This is Proclaiming the One. Don't change that dial. We'll be right back. You are listening to KNNALP 95.7 FM, Lincoln, Nebraska. Welcome back to Proclaiming the One. Pastor Poppy, Pastor Moline, Vicar Bader. We serve at Good Shepherd in Lincoln, Nebraska. Join us anytime, 3825 Wildbriar Lane in South Lincoln. We worship at 8 and 1030 on Sunday, 630 p.m. every Wednesday. Uh, check us out on the World Wide Web, thecross957.org. You can uh, listen. You can check out our archives. We've got a lot of uh, self-generated programs here at home in your hymnal, bringing Bach back. We uh, we work with Pastor Kuhlman at Trinity Murdoch for Nebraska Table Talk. So there's a lot of... Uh, uh, theological programs that we create here, uh, in addition to the uh, many other community radio programs that are available. So check that out, and uh, we'd love to have your feedback. The Old Testament reading for Trinity Sunday, one of my favorite readings in all of Isaiah. Isaiah 6, 1-7. to Vicar? 
In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. We, we talked in our previous segment just a, a moment about uh, picture language in Scripture or typology, and uh, this section is typology as well. Um, we want to make sure that people understand what we mean when we talk about typology. This stuff actually happened. Yes. We're not talking about a myth, a fable, or anything like that. This stuff actually happened, historically happened, and yet this historical event also points forward to something bigger, something better uh, with regard to the person and work of Jesus Christ. Think of it, uh, if you would, a a glass half full, and then Christ comes and fills it to overflowing. So you have the reality, and then you have the fulfillment of the reality as well in Jesus Christ. Hope that's that's helpful for our hearers. Uh, Vicar, um, the king is dead, and yet the throne is not empty. Explain that to me. Who is the true king of all the universe? It is God. God alone who rules and reigns. And actually, uh, we could talk about this a little bit, but we probably won't. You know, uh, It was a sin when the people of Israel asked to have a man-made king placed over them. Because God said, I alone shall be your king, and you shall be my people. So even though this human man died... God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, still rules and reigns as he had since the very beginning and before creation. When, whenever there's a void or a political vacuum in a country, the people go into panic. If there's a military coup, if there's an assassination, uh, if there's a disputed election, think hanging chads, uh, people are in turmoil. And God knows that they're in turmoil. He cares about their troubled souls and their troubled consciences. He just gives kind of a quick reminder, oh, yeah, by the way, I'm the king. I'm in charge. Uh, Pastor, do you want to say anything about the uh, six-winged seraphim? And, uh, you know, we get, we get this glimpse, this picture of heaven. And we see the song of heaven, holy, holy, holy. Uh, but uh, we get this picture of these angels, and uh, it's kind of a wild, crazy, bizarre picture. Well, yeah. Um, angels aren't maybe the way they've been depicted often in art or in bathrooms or however you want to see it. They're not just little babies with wings uh, that are chubby and can hardly support themselves and their weight with their little tiny wings. Uh, Angels are terrifying spiritual creatures who serve God and stand in his presence. 
And anytime someone sees an angel in the scripture, including this particular passage, or even the, the Virgin Mary or uh, Zachariah in the temple, whenever an angel shows up, um, usually the person who sees the angel falls on their face in terror at the angel uh, because these angels are that big, huge servant of God, spiritual warrior being. And so um, there's different ranks of angels. There's uh, the lowly angels. There's the high angels, all these different ranks. And seraphim are one of those ranks, along with cherubim. And uh, Paul perhaps suggests a whole bunch more in his writings as well. Okay. Uh, we do have a, a, a feast in our church here dedicated, uh, St. Michael and All Angels. That's toward yes. the end of September. And we'll, uh, we'll talk more about the theology of angels there. But uh, angels as representative of God uh, strike fear into the heart of the people that they're bringing a message to. And so often the uh, first words out of an angel's mouth, fear not fear not. I'm, I'm here for you, not against you. Isaiah's reaction uh, echoes what you talked about there, Pastor. Woe is me, I am lost. And then he says, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. What is this lip clean, unclean thing going on here, Pastor? First off, it's a confession. A confession is speaking the same thing God says, and this is what Isaiah is doing. He's saying, I'm a sinner, uh, and that's what God would say about Isaiah as well. Uh, he's talking about his lips being unclean because uh, at this point he realizes what God has called him to do, and that's to preach and speak a word from God to the people of Judah uh, and to their royalty and the whole royal family over all of Isaiah's life, basically. I think the period is uh, longer than 40 years that Isaiah writes. Um, and so his mouth being unclean, this is his concern. He's sinful. How is he supposed to speak God's word and truth and purity? And it's at this time then that the angel goes and gets a burning coal from the altar and touches it to his lips to purify him, which is an amazing thing right there, I think, because what's an altar for? An altar, you know, we think of it, it's just this big piece of stone or wood that sits in the front of the church. It's kind of like a table for the pastor to use. But really, an altar is the place of sacrifice. You kill the animal and you put it on the altar and you burn it to offer it to God for forgiveness of sins. Uh, and so he goes and gets a coal from this altar where the sacrifice has been made. And by touching the burning coal to Isaiah's lips, the sacrifice that was burned there offers Isaiah forgiveness of sins. And what do you think is the thing that's offered on the altar of heaven for the forgiveness of sins of all people? It's Jesus. The blood of Jesus, the the uh, the remains of what Christ was, you know, as he's offered as a sacrifice, are touched to Isaiah's lips, and that gives him forgiveness. And the same thing happens to us when we come to the altar now today, and we get Christ's body and blood placed into our lips for forgiveness of sins. Kind of a cool thing in that regard. Vicar, you're a farm boy, and uh, when you're out on the farm, there's uh, lots of opportunities to get out the torch and uh, cut cut on some metal to uh, get out the welder, um, if you took a hot piece of slag from uh, what you're welding, if uh, you took the piece of metal that you had just cut with the blow tar torch and touched that to any part of somebody's body, much less their lips, what would the result be? 
Uh, just like the scar that I have on my arm from a piece of weld falling down on it, and I caught it and burned into my skin, it it fry you. <laughs> yes, I mean it would only be for destruction. It would only be pain if you took a piece of molten metal and touched it to somebody's lips. They may never talk again. Uh, it may it the excruciating pain. Uh, they might have a heart attack and die. I mean the that's the word picture that we hear. But in the same way that Jesus did not come into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him, the tongs, the burning coals, the altar, the angels bring this and touch it to the lips of Isaiah to heal, to cleanse, to purify, rather than to hurt, to harm, destruct. Um, and uh, he touched my mouth. And said, now the angel is saying, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Now, Pastor, this must be a metaphor, right? I mean, there's not any actual real forgiveness of sins going on in Isaiah 6, right? Wrong. <laughs> no, it is forgiveness of sins because not only uh, do we have this idea of the sacrifice and the altar and the uh, burning away of sin taking place. We also have this as a word. Uh, the angels don't speak their own words to people. They always speak God's word. And when God's word says something, whatever God says is. And what's he say here? He says an absolution. Your sin is forgiven and atoned for. It's also pointing us then to Jesus with this discussion of the atonement. Uh, and so all these things are really truly bringing forgiveness of sins to Isaiah the same way we still receive true forgiveness in the words of absolution spoken by the pastor in the divine service uh, or also by anyone else as they forgive our sins. It's Trinity Sunday, the song of the angels, the song of heaven, holy, holy, holy. Help connect the dots there, Vicar. What's going on? The angel sings out three holies for our thrice holy God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. All three are represented here. All three are the king enthroned upon the throne that rule forever and ever. And thanks be to God, they, the Father has sent his son, Jesus, to be our true king by living, dying, and rising again for the forgiveness of our sins. Pastor, just one quick thought. Uh, as Isaiah confesses his sin, uh, he's confessing his sin with where his lips have been, what his lips have done. Maybe, uh, maybe words, uh, false words. Maybe uh, he has kissed uh, someone who's not his wife, or kissed an idol. You know, the the hot coal is applied directly to the spot where Isaiah confesses his sin. A few thoughts on that. Well, yeah, um, this is the benefit. I'm just going to go on a quick tangent. I don't have a ton of time. This is the benefit of private confession absolution. In divine service on Sundays, we receive forgiveness for general sins, saying all the sins you've done, they are forgiven. Sometimes there are specific sins that weigh us down or that we feel guilty for, and we have the opportunity then to confess that specific sin and receive absolution for that specific sin, and that's that's the gift of private confession and absolution. And I know many people are terrified to do that for fear that uh, their sins will be known by their pastor. I know many people also who say, well, I don't really need, need to do that because uh, uh, I don't feel guilty. In both cases, we need to repent 
and bring back that idea of uh, private confession absolution to the church for the benefit of our consciences and uh, so that we might be at peace before God and before our brothers and sisters in this world. God heals us where we hurt the most. And our thrice holy God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is not there to strike terror into your hearts, but to bring forgiveness, life, and salvation. He does this through the bloody death and glorious resurrection of Jesus for you. Vicar, would you bring things to a close with the collect of the day for Trinity Sunday? Let us pray. Almighty and everlasting God, you have given us grace to acknowledge the glory of the eternal Trinity by the confession of a true faith and to worship the unity in the power of the divine majesty. Keep us steadfast in this faith and defend us from all adversities. For you, O Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, live and reign one God, now and forever. Amen. 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 For Pastor Moline and Vicar Bader, Pastor Clint Poppy, thank you for tuning in to add Proclaiming the One. And we'll be back again next week. God's richest blessings in Christ. Pray for your pastor. Go to church. Amen.